Welcome curious foodies to Journey to the Centre of Food. My name's Jay Taylor, I'll be driving the sub today along with James Winter as ever on the controls alongside me. Hi! And on today's show we are going to pull back the veil on how food TV shows are made. We reckon between myself and James we've made something in the region of many many hundreds of hours of cookery television so we thought we'd share with you some of the secrets and stories behind what goes ma- it goes into making some of the shows you might have been watching over Christmas. Uh, plus we're going to be welcoming in another few famous diners to our dream dinner party. So put on your thickest makeup, smile your most perfect smile into camera three and quiet on set please as we take a journey to the centre of TV food. Oh, that was very slick. That was slick, Jay. Was that a good one? Did you like- <laughs> that was good. That's exactly. All we needed was that countdown for you know, me. I'm, you know, I come up this from the live production end, so I'm used to hearing someone say 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. No one ever says 5, by the way, because normally that's run VT. Um, right, and you can't say 3, 2, 1. Yeah, there's no 2, 1. I mean, it's hand signals. So I thought about doing that, but it doesn't work very well on a pod, does it? <laughs> And so, and, and that's all usually done by the floor manager and different, you know, when you work in telly enough times, you, you see the same people a lot. And really, there's probably only about seven floor managers in the whole industry. And they are sometimes add a little flamboyant swing of the arm when they do go or something, you know, and you get to know them. And it's, you know, that's, that's you know, it's, it's yeah. These are all the things that are happening literally behind the camera as you're staring at Philip Schofield or, or in our world, sort of a Mary Berry or a Jamie Oliver or James Martin, you know. There's, there's all of us lot in our puffer jackets behind. Well, I think that's the first thing to set straight for people is that, you know, before we get into actually, shall we part that and you want to talk? Uh, yeah, we'll do that. Yeah, yeah, we'll come back. We'll come well, this back. Is, Sorry, we're, in that, we're in that beautiful hiatus moment between Christmas and New Year and as you said yeah, this is utterly indulgent isn't it this is this mm. is you and I talking about what we do for a living actually what I actually said was that the entire how many 80 episodes of your podcast so far I've literally just been a precursor to this one episode <laughs> where Jay and I are alone indulging ourselves with our own stories because we just talk about TV <laughs> well we find them amusing, so there's probably one other person listening that does, Jake. I'm sure no one else. My, I mean, genuinely, no one cares how you make TV shows. Like, I don't care, monkey. Just make the damn things and put it on the squawk box in the corner. I don't know mm. how you do it. I don't know about your struggles doing it. Um, so, yeah. So do do feel free to skip past this episode, delete it. We're just going to be talking about food TV. But, oh, actually, before that, we, I mean, it feels as we've all been sort of lolling around, uh, goffing ourselves we still have to continue adding to our dream dinner party uh, just as a reminder in case anyone hasn't been a part of this truly epic award-winning part of uh, podcasting we've been putting together people from history who we want to come to our dinner party not because they're particularly interesting not because they're of particularly fine moral character uh just because they know they like food they bring certain foods to the party uh, and we think they'd be good for our for our for our grub so far, at the table, we have Montezuma with a big bowl of spiced chocolate and his headdress on. We have Queen Victoria and her curry. We have Napoleon, who's not really into his food, but he is bringing the chef Karem with us to do the catering. Mm-hmm. We have Thomas Jefferson, who's got some ice cream and a rather splendid bottle of port. Um, Charlemagne is here with his cheese board. Uh, and Frederick the Great brought along some coffee and beer. Uh, so already, 
exactly. It's a hell of a dinner party already, isn't it? Uh, yeah. But, but I have some more suggestions. Uh, I think come- we need someone from maybe the 20th century as well. Otherwise, we're going to have no touch points with them, Jay. When we all get round to play Mario Karts at the end of the evening, <laughs> they're not going to be able to understand. The charades is going to be rubbish. They're going to be. Doing- <laughs> well, we've had we've had a um, we've had a, a suggestion come in. Uh, Leo B- uh, Bam Ordenvale. Hello, Leo. He gets in contact a lot. And we do appreciate it. Um, he said, who he suggests we have along is, um, if you want religious figures, mm. I would suggest Pope Pius the Fourth to represent the uh, the church because then you get Bartolom- Bart- Bartolomeo? Bartolomeo Bartolomeo Bartolome Scappi. You know that? Who that is? The very very famous chef who. <laughs> according to uh, sources, which may begin with Wiki and Endopedia, is, as I'm sure we all know, the famous Italian Renaissance chef um, who basically gained notoriety in 1570 with his monumental cookbook, and apologies to the Italians in advance, the Opera dell'Arte di Coquinari. I mean, that sounded like I knew what I was saying then. Uh, And it lists a thousand recipes of Renaissance cuisine and describes cooking techniques and uh, tools. And apparently it's the first known picture of a fork and he declared Parmesan to be the best cheese on earth. So if if we get the, uh, the Pope along who will be quite cool. <laughs> We're going to get a really good chef as well to go in the kitchen with the creme. Uh, <laughs> well, and, and, and in addition to Charlemagne's cheese board. <laughs> well, know. they're going to have a right old punch up though, aren't they? Because Charlemagne with his rock four. And, uh, <laughs> so, um, so I think Bartolomeo and the, and the Pope are in. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what, a, what, a, what a conversation that'll be between, <laughs> between them. Uh, but you did say about... Um, 20th century. So mm. this, I have some singing suggestions. We're going to move away a little bit from the dictators mm. and warlords of this world. Some singers thought might be yeah. fun. Mm-hmm. So here's the guys in the queue outside. See who you like the sound of. Um, so, Pavarotti. Mm. Now, uh, he, is, he, is, he was a pasta lover. He mm. was estimated to have gained and lost more than £5,000 in his career in weight. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Which is which is pretty impressive. And he once yeah. theorised that fat people were happy because their nerves were well protected. Which I think is just a wonderful theory that he's clearly put some um, some thought into it. Um, there's also this thing about opera singers. There was this kind of myth mm. that heft being larger sort of made you um, made you sing better. Um, and he would he would always have a big meal after his evening performance, packing on the packing on the calories to try and give mm. you um, give you size. So I, I love the idea of having Pavarotti with a massive stinking plate of pasta there and just being the soul of the party and bringing that idea of just overeating there. He hmm. seems quite fun. However, we also have... I mean, he was going to crop up, wasn't it? Elvis Presley? Uh-huh. No. <laughs> now, the stories about Elvis are long. I'll give you a couple of, uh, of quick ones. As we have all know, he was kind of obsessed with food he had uh, a closed circuit television camera that was trained on the kitchen so elvis could monitor the pie baking and banana pudding making from his bedroom <laughs> when he ate his meals 
Is that true? Is that actually in, in Graceland or whatever? Can that's you see in Graceland, that? yes. Apparently really? it's in Graceland, yes. That's where they. Are you sure he was spying or just able to? He just wanted to talk to the kitchen and say, "Can I have one of your pies, please?" I mean, you know. Well, one of his, one of his, um, in the sixties. So mm. it says steak was only a dollar a pound. His uh, his grocery bill was five hundred dollars a week, which was pretty impressive. And he had so much Pepsi. The Pepsi delivery truck came to his house, but. <laughs> The best. He wasn't on his own, though. Surely he's not living <laughs> no, alone. Got loads in, of stuff, isn't there? He, he's living alone in Graceland <laughs> with a Pepsi lorry pulling up, just pumping it into the downstairs vat. <laughs> his um, his favourite meal was something called peanut butter and nana sandwich. Absolutely. Uh, two pieces of white bread, lightly toasted, peanut butter on one piece, mashed up banana on the other. The bread was put together. The sandwich was then fried in butter uh, and eaten with a knife and fork. You've got to be classy, um, mm. which is which is very impressive. Although there was this what, last bit about Elvis. Uh, there was this sandwich called Fool's Gold, and he flew more than 800 miles to eat one. Um, and it was because one of his guests asked for it, and apparently he had this thing where um, he could never, if someone asked for something, he had to give it to them. So basically, then they got on a plane and flew all the way to get it. I'll tell you what this sandwich was. Mm. It's called Fool's Gold. A cook would warm an entire loaf of Italian bread, hollow it out, then stuff it with peanut butter, grape jelly, and a pound of bacon. Um, good Lord. Uh, the restaurant prepared 22 of them and rushed them to the airport, uh, meeting Elvis Presley and his group when they got there. Uh, and the hangar was turned into a dining hall, and the guests f- basically feasted on this, those fool's gold champ- and oh. champagne. I mean, come on! Fascinating, though, because there is a there is an Italian sandwich, French you know, sort of Mediterranean sandwich called pan bagnat, which is effectively a, like a tuna niçoise salad piled into a hollowed out loaf and compressed and and left and sliced. You know, it's that idea that you take your lunch with you all day, and you you know it's there. So. It's an interesting idea to fill it with peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> He's got to be there. I'm a massive fan anyway of his. He's got to be there because that sounds oh, incredible. Oh, come on. If, look, if, if, if we can, of course, Elvis got even if it's, you know, I mean, personally, I'd go for the slightly before fat Elvis phase and go for the, you know, the, you know, the sort of early, just before that turn when he's still pumping out the music in Vegas and it's just like a god. I love it, Vegas. Vegas, when he's just on the podge in Vegas, mm. is my favourite era. Just filling out a little bit. Yeah, like, yeah big sunglasses. Yeah. You know, oh, just to hear that man sing and to see him in the flesh would just be extraordinary. I mean, he is, you know, so yes, of course he can come, you know. And also, I want to eat with him because you, you want to be eating around people who love eating. I think we should, I personally think we should give Napoleon the boot now in place for Elvis because we can't have anyone there who doesn't want their food. And yeah, he's no. bringing Karem, but we've also got this and other fella. Yeah, we want stories, and you know, uh, well, yeah, Napoleon will have stories, but maybe he wouldn't want to share them with us. He was maybe a bit secretive, and not he wasn't one for sharing the fun, right? Exactly, you know, he He's wanted not it be all for himself. Whereas Elvis, absolutely. Although you know, we'd have to have a, he, he, we'd have to give de- designate like the upstairs toilet for him. <laughs> he he, he did need a throne as well. Need a while in there. <laughs> We're going to give him a golden throne and. <laughs> He can basically have whatever he likes. I think once, as we keep going down this road, we're going to have to start making tough decisions because there's only finite size of our dinner. Yeah, table. what's the table size? You didn't? Did you specify that? Well, well, come on, you know better than me. You're the fact that what, what what's the kind of maximum well, table size you can have before you get beyond a, a good a good vibe? Well, no, it, no, well, it depends, doesn't it? I mean, you know, I mean, certainly not the fact that in Heinz Head we've got a lovely private dining room with a, a one table but hewn from a solid piece of oak that can fit twenty people around it. So. Okay, twenty seems like a good want. number. Let's go with twenty. 
That yeah. feels like that feels like quite a good. I mean, you'd have to circulate, Jay. You'd have to do a little bit of an inter, in, intercourse mix-up. You know, you can't have you can't. That sounds you like can't an entirely different meal. <laughs> but you can't have Charlemagne hogging Montezuma's attention all evening. We all want to. We all want a little chat with the, uh, the Mexican sun god. <laughs> and if we cap it at twenty, at least our poor listeners will know that this feature one day will end. No, uh, well, will as we've already established, they're only going to listen to this one episode. Yeah, exactly. After this, everything is a, a slow downward spiral. So, sure, yeah, let's let's. Well, while we hear the mass sound of people turning off the podcast, let's talk TV because as two TV people, we could we could do this for 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 days. But first of all, I mean, I, the one thing I did say in the intro was that between us, we've done hundreds of hours of, of TV, I, of, of just food TV. We've done many more than hundred hours of all TV, but food television. Have you ever actually calculated how many food TV shows you've made? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose my journey is like in the sense that. I made a lot of one or two programs, if you sort of mean. So, you know, obviously doing Saturday Kitchen every week for over 10 years, I did that. Wow. You know, that's, that's 50. I mean, it was usually every week. I mean, it, we, we normally did 49 programs a year. Each program is whatever. It was 10 till 11.30. So, you know, an hour and a half long. So... That's almost five hundred shows. That's almost five hundred yeah. shows there. Well, we did we did five hundred shows when I was there. We did our. I mean, that was you know that was we we you know we we'd mark those as you do in television. You mark those milestones with a montage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Got to have a montage. <laughs> so yeah. So and prior to that, I've done I've done other things. I mean, I did. I spent two years. My very first TV job completely was on Ready Steady Cook, and that's another high volume, low budget fast turnaround, high-energy food competition show, you know, where we did hundreds of those. We used to record three of them a day. Good laws. When a machine is working, you, you work it, you know. So we'd spend, you know, one week in studio recording three shows a day for three days a week, so nine shows a week for... We do probably do two weeks back to back and then take a week back great break to get ready for the next two-week block, and that's how we do it. So we'd churn out sort of 18 shows every two weeks for a period of three months so you might be so we should we should actually point out to our listeners so the reason that i don't know how james's stuff works and he doesn't know we do know a bit but basically there's a Mm. sort of delineation within television between what we call shiny floor which is what james used to do which is what you would think of as as live television or as live television so you have a studio with studio cameras a set and and people within it whereas the other side of things which is uh sort of what we call features television or factual television or unscripted as it's called in america and we're starting to call it over here is is what i did which was when you would go out and you would do things with cameras out and about so more documentary filming so all the many years of shows i made with heston and other chefs along those lines so basically anything that's not in a studio and has more of a kind of uh, a narrative on location purpose so that th- th- these are two separate entities within television and actually yes you can work across them but it doesn't happen a huge amount they are quite um separate disciplines so i i started out in live television way back in the day but that was in sort of sport and sport news so while i understand the principles of it i have very little understanding of the mechanics of live food television um, and i had no idea that you'd make that many ready steady cooks but the one i wanted to talk about first was was saturday kitchen because that's been such a a, a grandfather of kind of food television shows and i was curious to find out from you how do you go about planning a show and not more in the kind of what's the thinking what do you aim for within one of those shows how does it work 
Um, right. Well, first of all, you've you know the first delineating factor is how long is the show. So you know, have you got thirty minutes, sixty minutes, forty-five minutes, ninety minutes, and and obviously depending which channel you're on, you get a different amount of those minutes in full. So on 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 Channel Four and ITV, you don't get sixty minutes of television to make. You might have as low as forty-two. You know, with advert breaks and break bumpers and sponsorship things and everything. So you factor that in. And with BBC, it's just pure you know Class A television. You know, so there's you know when you have a ninety-minute slot, you have to make ninety minutes. Oh my of television. God, BBC nineties and BBC sixties feel endless when you're trying to make them you're like oh god i wish i had an advert break there's yeah. a big difference between a 60 and a 40 when it comes to the two di- commercial Hell versus yeah. public so that's your first challenge you have to i mean it's you know diff- people do it in different ways i've seen lots of people sort of you know you you build your running order so you know if you've got a format which saturday kitchen is a format so yes it's in a studio but it has a it has a framework it has a skeleton of of, of items which you fit in in a way that you know keeps people watching you you know the challenge is always to keep people watching to the end isn't it you know so yes you have you have principles of building these things you put your best content first but you also hold something back and you try and create narratives throughout the program that mean that you don't find out what's really going to happen till the very end so on saturday kitchen we'd have the heaven and hell vote you know where you set it all up throughout the whole show but really it's a it's a it's designed to make you stick to the last you know, come back in for the last five minutes and see what the result was. You know, and at different points, viewers were able to vote, not vote, vote, not vote, whatever. You know, the, the, the different regulations changed all the time. But really, it's a narrative device to make you stick around. Whereas also what you want at the very beginning of the show, um, which I'm a firm believer in, is is solid, good content. Because that's why people tune in. They don't tune in, you know, you know I mean... Take it back a step, actually. I mean, what, one of the real key things about live television is you have to remember what it is that you're making, you know, and what it is you're doing. And what you're effectively doing is you're coming into somebody's home and presenting something to them. They have invited you in. They've turned that television set on and you are sometimes 70 inches wide in the middle of their living room, you yeah. know. And, and if you don't give them, you know, A, respect, but B, good quality, you know, content that they're, they're expecting as such, they will just turn you off. You know, there'll be no polite, oh, do you mind? They just turn you off and they're gone. Then, you know, and, and you only have to give people a split second to make that decision and they will turn you off. So the challenge of the program maker is to make sure that, you know, you never give them a reason to, to turn off during the program, but also you engage them with, respectfully with, with quality content suitable for the time and place that you're presenting on. So, you know, BBC One on a Saturday morning is a very different landscape to Channel 4, 9 o'clock Friday night, you know, where you can, you know, you've got to understand your audience but really it's the same principle you're trying to fit comfortably into someone's home which is such a personal space you know that you, you, you have to take that seriously so my view was always you reward that person for tuning in at the beginning which is kind of what you hope people would do rather than drift in after watching half an episode or something else you know with some of the best content you've generated in that period of production you know but also narratively not reminding them that there's something else to look forward to something else to look forward to always forward trailing it's a, it's it's like radio in a way and you build that in 90 minutes so you start putting it out so you know that on the hour you know there are other i mean you learn so many of these things as you work in television for a period but people will tell you these bits of learning like the human attention span is only 40 minutes long so if you've got any you know sense about you you put something that changes the dynamic of the show after about 40 minutes otherwise people just would turn off you know they're watching 40 minute chunks so you know you kind of you bring in another item or you bring in another person or you 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 have a special feature that you only show after 45 minutes so that they stick around a bit and it then gets refreshes 
their you know their feeling about it and you try and apply all these principles into piecing together a, a patchwork of content that fills the time that you've got how do you, you decide know? in terms of the food aspects how much detail to go into what food because you have the whole spectrum of food to cover any chef you want you know in britain could come on there how, how, you but you can equally define what people buy in the supermarket that week well you? that's a that's a byproduct we never did you know i mean certainly my experience of that show was that we never set out with that goal in mind you know what happens is people start to trust you and that was it you know they start to trust you and that's because i think we did a you know tremendously diligent job of trying to put the best we could possibly find you know in front of them so that people started to you know each week were rewarded by the fact that we had good content and we were truthful and honest about it and when it came to the food you know <clears throat> I mean I work very close with James Martin I can't I can't talk about other presenters on that show and greatly I mean I work with some of them but not in as much depth as I did with James but it was a very simple premise you know there were in Saturday Kitchen there were you know two I've got to count them again now two guest chefs James so one two three recipes plus two possibly at the end of the show so we'd have to have five recipes ready each week um, brand new ones and so the journey of finding the guests was quite simple we would find you know it would either you know the purpose of those eight ten minutes we would give to a recipe segment which was very long actually if you think about other shows like this morning and and these other shows that digest food content massively they'll often devote three or four minutes to a recipe yeah. you can't make any you can't make anything in three or four minutes you know and that would be the first battle of that show when i was involved was to convince these chefs that that was not the purpose of this show because that was their experience prior that they would come on with a recipe to share and they wouldn't be able to do it properly it'd be rushed and it wouldn't look great and their whole careers finished you know a lot of chefs would have that philosophy from the outset but um the journey was to convince them it was different, but also to create a framework in the show where they could succeed. You know, they had eight, ten minutes, and if they went over by two or three minutes, we could absorb it somewhere in the show that we didn't ever have to rush them. But you can't retake it, right? Did they have any cases no. where they completely messed oh, up? Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. You know, it's live telly. You know, and part of the reason people love live telly is for the mistakes. It's not, they don't remember it when you get it right. They don't write in and say, that was a tremendous item. You succeeded in fulfilling eight to 10 minutes perfectly. And I never noticed a single mistake. They never write in with that. <laughs> you know, they, they love it when things go wrong. And actually, you know, I, I, you know, the learning of that is it's how you respond to the mistakes that's really important. You know, but really, when it came to the recipes, we had a simple philosophy is that the food was the start, right? And and James and I would talk about it greatly. And, and it's bits of learning you pick up from other, from chat shows, is that you invite a guest on, you know, to make a plate of food. Now, in our principal world, the plate of food was, they had to work really hard to make that plate of food understandable and look as great and, and be as good as we possibly could. And so, therefore, if, if that happened, then the person that made that food, i.e. the guest chef, would also look good. And therefore, by you know extrapolation james would look bloody amazing right because the food looks good the guest looks good he looks like the best host in the world yeah you know because that's all he had to do was just facilitate those two things so what would happen in reality is that a lot of these guest chefs you know and this was the challenge of a production and with james who was brilliant at it is that we found that chefs fell into two categories they you know, they could either talk or they could cook yeah but not so, at the same time <laughs> not at the same time and so depending on which variety we had james would have to fulfill the other role you know and obviously oh, each week we would be we'd be hoping he'd be hoping that you know they you know well it'd be, to be honest the challenge was equally great on either side if they just cooked and said nothing james is there running around and going 
tell us something, effectively. <laughs> Please and say I, something. And, and uh, you know, he'd have the voices in his ear, one of which was mine, just coming up with questions or trying to find bits of interest while this chef is making something wonderful, but not telling us a single thing to give it any context. Where's you got the others who stand there and tell these incredible stories about their lives and their journeys, but haven't even picked up a single ingredient in the eight minutes. So, <laughs> so meanwhile, James has to do the whole recipe. So James would do the whole thing for one or two chefs over the years, not all, not all the time, but some of the, the whole recipe from start to finish. And has he rehearsed you know, this? But, I don't know how much yes. rehearsal you have on the recipes. So, so what James would get is the recipes beforehand. We would have practiced them ourselves with the food team, and we'll talk about who's on a TV show production team in a minute. But we would have practiced it, tested it, tried it, had some thoughts about it, questions, you know, to generate the con- conversation around it. But then in the morning of the Saturday Kitchen studio, so when we're live at 10, we'd all be in the studio from 6 and at um, sort of half past six, um, actually, yeah, between half six and seven, we'd start and we'd do the whole show. Every every onion, every pet food, every every recipe, every VT is played through the studio and tested and watched and thought about and, and everything. And James would... And guests. Everything. The guests are all there as well. Not the... Not the uh, with guest chef, yes. So the guest chef absolutely would come in and cook their dish with James. Uh, and James would basically be watching like a hawk how to do this recipe, knowing full well that, you know, we'd, we'd then have a little, you know, a sideways chat, James and I, about what kind of person we thought this person was going to be when the red light goes on, because that's the other thing you learn about live telly. You know, people change when the red light goes on. <laughs> and, you know, these chatty, confident, super funny dudes become just monosyllabic, mumbling you know, schoolboys again or girls you know you know when the red light goes on and the pressure's on and you just have to you just get an eye for that and you start to sense which people's I always used to say some people get bigger when they go on stage some people get smaller and that's 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 what you're trying to look for I mean obviously in telly and the, and the talent search you're looking for people to get bigger you're trying to find those people that somehow grow when put in front of an audience they, it's their platform and that's for you know that's for Jamie Oliver's for James Martin's for Gordon well the Ramsey's camera dilutes the camera the camera dilutes people physically I mean, the pe- I've always found the people that look best on screen have quite big, unusual faces. In real life, they look slightly out of kilter. But then when you see them on the screen, they look great and because it, it just mm. pops through. And the same with the personality. Like you said, it's those, it's those characters who can be, in real life, would actually be quite frustrating or annoying because they are so big in one direction or another. But on TV, it just works because all the colours are diluted. All the personality is diluted. And the pressure, you know, doesn't help either. So, when, so from your, your experience then in, in, the, in the outside you know, sort of long, you know, your, your journey, when you've confronted with a contributor, which you know, obviously you've spent a bit of time trying to find, but might be the expert in the room, so you have to suck it up sometimes. Hmm. When they're not the best at expressing what they do, when clearly what they do is amazing, I mean, what do you do? So well, this is interesting. So the words, just so you know, they're contributors. So we have different different. There's terms in TV which are awful, but you have the talent, which I used to hate as a phrase, but it kind of makes sense. The talent is the presenter. So it's whoever. It's the James Martin. It's the Heston. It's the Jamie. It's whoever it is. And contributors are all the other people that end up speaking on camera. So you'll have a uh, you know going to a historian to talk about X, or you get in your you know your book expert, or whatever it is. Um, so what will invariably happen is we'll be in a situation, either two situations with those guys. So you'll turn up. Um, uh, at a location so say we're going to be doing something about i don't know the history of the of the sandwich and we turn up at a manor house and we're going to meet a historian now that may be with our presenter who's going to chat to them uh or it may be just with a camera crew to do an interview with them um i think 
I had a couple of approaches to those situations. The first one was to always get people doing things. If someone's doing something, be it driving or making a sandwich or something, nothing too complicated, not and it not focused on what they're doing because it doesn't really matter. But you'd be amazed how much freer people speak when they're not thinking about speaking and they mm. can just chat and be. And the other approach I always took, which which held me in great stead over many years, because, you know, Heston who is who I did majority of my food television shows with, and he'll be the first to admit that he's not natural on camera. He's not got the charisma of a Jamie Oliver or a Gordon who you can just go and just be perfect every time. Heston's much more of a normal person and um, doesn't perform in that way. So mm. I remember Steve Wright, the DJ, on Radio 1 back in the day, but now Radio 2, said this thing about how they used to do their radio shows, which is they always want to be having a great time off air. So when the microphones come on, it just carries on and it just feels natural and everyone's having a good old time. And that's the approach we took when we were filming. We had very small teams compared to the millions of people you have making live TV. There was generally me with a camera, a sound man and an assistant producer. And that was often mm. it, uh, along with Heston or whoever it was we were filming with. And what we'd do is we'd just have such a good laugh and we'd have such a collegiate atmosphere and everyone would be getting on so well that whenever you got a contributor in that mix, they felt like they were part of a gang and you're having mm. such a giggle already. And when the camera comes up, because it's not a red light, it's all very subtle. It's just me moving my hand up. Um, they Half the time, they didn't even realise that we were filming. And, and, and also, the other thing that we always had was I always have the edit in my pocket, which mm. you didn't have. So no. I, t- I take hours and hours and hours of rushes back to my edit suite and we sit down there and we craft that over many, many weeks. You're looking at six to ten week edit for a single hour show and during that time i can basically make anybody say anything i want and make anybody look good because mm. you have the, the capacity to cut around people and also cut people you know there isn't the same pressure yes sometimes you need a key contributor to be awesome but mm. you'll have spoken to them beforehand you know it but if they're rubbish they tend to just hit the cutting room floor and never see the light of day so I've, mm. i think we have more more tricks in our pocket than you did in live tv to be able to to cover that because in live TV, do you remember any moments, ones that leaped to your mind, where the wheels were really coming off and you were doing that duck paddling thing where the viewer can't know, but, oh, my God, all hell's breaking loose on set? How do you... What was what happened? Well, look, it is... Absolutely, very many times. And, and sometimes you just have to stop the show and admit the wheels have come off people. We just, you know, sometimes, sorry, you know, and normally on live telly, it's a, it's somebody swears, you know, let's be honest. I mean, if something burnt in the oven or whatever of course we just get on with it and you know we you know you know we deal with that differently but obviously there are you know regulations and rules and guidelines and and things when when something happens that is you know outside the realm of where you should be broadcasting i.e you are inappropriate for your content so yes of course that has happened that happens on live telly you know you can't and and there are protocols you follow and you follow them and you you know you you, you learn from them you know but really you're absolutely right what you're doing sometimes certainly on saturday kitchen don't forget this is seven in the morning we start and people are having a glass of wine right <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, mainly people, no <laughs> You know, and and so when you get to like ten o'clock, sometimes people have had a glass and a half of wine, right? You know, it's a food and drink program. We want people to be relaxed and having a good time, but obviously you also want them to know that this is, you know, we're live in someone's living room right now. So just remember that, people, before you forget where they are. And that's for that's the challenge that we've faced and face in those environments and live tellies. You want exactly the same atmosphere that you're talking about. Convivial, fun, lively, not aware of the cameras, being as natural and as funny and witty as you know these people are because that's the casting process that you've done. You've done that. You've tried to find people that have those abilities. But also, 
just your job as the producer in those things is to just be a kind of a little bit of a, of a of a rope around it all to just remind them where the boundaries are. And I, I was just thinking as you were talking, I remember a couple of times people would you know forget where they are, who why you know, but, but you know often the question would be, you know, are we on air? You know, that would be, a, are we actually, are we, is this bit live? Yes. Because what, what would happen on Saturday Kitchen in particular is it would be, you know, you'd be live for 10 minutes and there'd be a, like a seven, eight minute VT where you go in and generally, practically, you'd be resetting for the next recipe and tidying up and whatnot and everything. But the guests would mill around with their glasses of wine and chat with the crew and have a look. Oh, really? And, and just have a chat. And, and you'd have to remind them all the time. I remember the actor, I think it's David Haig. Um, wonderful actors in four weddings and all sorts of charming but I mean just talking about dinner party guests earlier he'd be a marvellous dinner party guest because he was he's just a charming man you know he's got that kind of British you know way about him but it just means he's just great company and I just I had a vision of him as you were talking just coming out coming off the set and talking to me going when does the show begin James? <laughs> we've already done we've already done 48 minutes David <laughs> so have we oh really you know that kind of response would not be not, you know and then just and certainly the americans we'd get occasionally get sort of you know as you, as your show grows you see one of the great barometers of success in your in your television is the kind of caliber of guests you get you know without disrespecting any of our wonderful guests that i certainly you know had on the show sometimes your guest has you know maybe been in a movie you know or, or you know or whatever you know or sold a billion albums or or something and you know they're they're the people that would you know you come on who was the really... biggest who were the big names you had that you loved who were, and who were the weirdest oh, well it's <laughs> Well, look, you've had some guests of oh, I'd never heard of. I mean, I'm not going to name them because I can't, believe, I can't actually remember them, you know, but sort of faceless, nameless actors and actresses and things you just kind of have because they're in the zeitgeist at the moment, but I didn't know who they were. But for me, you know, you it's I'm always, I mean, I'm a studier of, of entertainment and, and presenting, I suppose. I love those people. So obviously when you get people like Donny Osmond, you know, or any, or to be honest, any of the Osmond family, I think I've clocked up three of them. Or for me personally, it's the uh, members of the crew uh, f, uh, uh, of the... Um, the sort of uh, what you call it, the deck of a Starship Enterprise. So anyone that's in the uh, is the, that you your know, sweet spice? Oh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, I've never met William Shatner. That's it. You know, I, he would have been my if I could have got William Shatner on the show. Um, I'd that would love have been... to have seen William Shatner on Saturday Kitchen. Oh, wouldn't that's it be the great? Perfect mix, isn't it? William Shatner making well, a flan would have been just awesome. I mean, one of my favourite guests, and if anyone googles, oh, there's some great clips of him on YouTube. Was when. Um, Oh God, what's he called? Okay, Sulu. God, I can't remember his name now because I'm, I'm trying to pull these memories. And um, the actor who played um, Lieutenant, I think it was Sulu, who was the navigator of the Starship Enterprise. We're talking classic series. I'm not talking Picard and Next Generation. Um, and he just, I mean, you could see he had no idea. A lot of it, that's what I mean. A lot of these characters, certainly from America, if they come on, have George no, Taki. George Takai. Takai. George Takai. George Takai. George Takai. And he would say George Takai. <laughs> Yes, talk like that, and it was just so funny. And there's um, he came on for a Christmas episode, um, and there's a wonderful image I have of him wearing. A, we obviously got people funny hats, and he wore a, a, a Christmas tree hat, and was just one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> and they wouldn't, they'd never seen the show. They didn't know who James Martin was. They didn't understand what we were doing. They'd just come along, go drink with some wine, and eat some food. Go, this is just the best show ever. And they were just great company. But so when you meet someone like a Donny Osmond, who I'd actually, I'd actually produced him for one special show I did years ago live show where he had co he hosted for a week and so I got to be the man in Donny Osmond's ear but what what um this was all live and 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 what you learn from someone like a Donny Osmond who has entertainment in his veins is how you 
just the simple things. It's the energy he brings to every moment and every conversation. It's designed, you know. It's a. I remember watching him at the Lava Show. I don't produce where we had a, it was a chat show, so we had a sofa element and we had a different part of the set. And so normally, you know, presenter move. Can you move across to a set? Q go and made walk across the set. Donny would go the other way, would run round the back of the audience block, round a pillar, through the cameras, and run and jump into the other area. And you think. We didn't ask him to do that. Wow. But that's it. That's his entertainment spirit. But it added a thousand volts to a moment which was essentially very dull telly. And he, he just knew it. So he added something to it. And that's that's what you pick up from these people when you when you meet. That's what I'm interested in. So those, I mean, Donny Osmond's always a great guest on any show. It makes you know, it easy, so he, doesn't it? When they, I remember once we were filming with Jeremy Clarkson. And you know they're really, really good when you find yourself just genuinely listening as if you're watching tv when you're doing it mm. on camera and it's the same with that isn't it when you just get drawn in and you're not having to produce or anything you're just watching going this is brilliant oh god i'm in charge mm. i better say something but that it's quite rare though isn't it I, to find ones that good is rare oh but that's you know, and then just to finish off my other yes exactly and to, to 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 illustrate your point my, my favorite favorite a guest ever on a Saturday Kitchen episode, which is me personally, I wouldn't say it for anybody else on a production team or whatever, was the actor Sam Neill. Now, Sam Neill, oh, yeah, uh, you know, of Jurassic Park, my favorite film of Dish, she was in Peaky Blinders. I mean, he's done it's, it's endless, endless films, you know, Sam's been in. And, you know, I don't, he came on, I think, to promote like something to do with Peaky Blinders. And we approached him many, many times because obviously he produces wine, right? And I think in the, in the previous episode with wine expert Ollie Smith, um, he, he, you know, he talks about the quality of of, of Sam's wine. He's two paddocks, about isn't it? it. Two, two paddocks? paddocks, two paddocks, and it's wonderful wine. So we'd always approach these people because they have an interest in food and drink, and you think you might lure them in. And of course, we did eventually. And of course, you know, it was wonderful. But part of part of the process of that is that he insisted on going out for lunch with me and the commissioner no. to discuss the show. And you think, great, you know, even if even if he says no, I don't want to do it now, James. It doesn't matter. Have, and, and it was the best lunch. We went to a restaurant um, in Mayfair called Wild Honey. If anyone's been there or not been there, you should go there. It's run by a brilliant chef called Auntie Dimitri. Um, and we just, and you know what? Because obviously they said to me, James, can you pick a venue for lunch? Which is terrible, terrifying. terrifying. <laughs> Where are we going to go for lunch? With Sam Neill, the actor, my commissioning editor, who I know from experience, you know, you know, had certain things that they liked about food, you know, and, and I thought, oh God, how do I balance it? So I picked Wild Honey because I thought Anthony would just get the fact that Sam Neill's in the room and it would be really exciting, you know, and it was just, he was just the most lovely man, you know, so even if he'd never done the show, I had a wonderful experience and he, yeah, he taught me, we had a wonderful conversation about parenthood and children and families and stuff, you know, and he told me one or two things that have really stuck with me, mainly because it was from Sam Neill, but also they were true and because he, he was an honest, truthful man, you know, and, and when he came on the show, it was just the best best fun you know we managed to find christmas jumpers with dinosaurs on and everything (laughs) (laughs) isn't that awesome you do that's the joy of this job actually you end up in those moments many moments i mean what you you don't get job security you don't get a clear career path you don't get any of those things but what you do get is to travel the world and do the most ridiculous incredible ludicrous things in all sorts of places and and have doors open to you in a way you would never have imagined Mm. and like you say I had an experience only last, well, earlier this year, actually. I was going to have lunch with a person we were hoping to work with. And 
oh god there was a traffic jam and i haven't you know that moment when you were when you're starting out in your career and you're not very good at time management and you're late for things and you're petrified because this is a really big deal and you don't want to be late mm. that never happens anymore because i always get places early because i don't like being late and this one was really important because i was going for lunch with brian johnson the lead singer from acdc so Ooh, for yeah. me that was just like oh my god this is the most ridiculous thing and we're going to his local pub and we're gonna and and I, I was just, I could not believe I was going to be late for this defining part of my life. And then I got there and like you said, just the loveliest guy sitting there bantering, eating oysters with him. And it was just one of those mm. moments where you go, because uh, I'm not, I'm never starstruck because uh, having spent this long behind the camera, I, they, the, the sort of fame has no allure. But when the person you've sort of looked up to and seen on the screen for so many years turns out to be just absolutely lovely and genuinely fun and kind and normal, it's really fun and pleasant to have that because we've also encountered enough of them who are complete stark raving lunatics uh, and mm. completely believe their own hype and aren't that kind of person. So it is nice when you get when you get the good ones, isn't it? Yeah, and I guess that's you're right. That's what the, the, the sort of television card sometimes buys you is that you kind of step through a number of layers. If you met these people in the street or after a concert or after something, you're not going to get any way close to understanding or connecting with them as a person. And, and sometimes when you work with them, I'm not saying you become, you know, you might become friends, or whatever, but you, you somehow step inside that circle for a short time. And that's sometimes really, I mean, that's really, you know, it's it's part of the buzz of it, but it's also fascinating, you know, to, to get to know that these people are just people. And it reminds you that we are all just one animal under the sun. You know, we're just the same underneath, regardless of, of experience and trappings and yeah, someone sort of pointing a camera at you and yeah, you know, and and you know, it's some people. I mean, that's the, I mean, that's what you realise. I'm sure you do when you know when we work with cameras and we're filming things. Some people are, are in front of a camera; it doesn't make them any different, but they are the talent. I mean, yeah. you know, and and you have to remember that, and you have to respect that, and and you know, you have to be honest with yourself and and confess that the viewers are not tuning in because I did a really good job planning the show and picked some really good people. They're watching it because they like the people that are on the screen, you know, and you have to, you know, they, they you know, you that's the, the sort of unsaid boundary between before, in front and behind the camera is that, you know, they become well-known and they get other things off the back of it. And, you know, some yeah. people behind the camera, I guess, I never did, but, you know, they aspire to that and they want that. And, you know, it's an interesting journey to watch people who, who push from behind the camera to get in front. And, and I guess that's where a lot of talent you know, and presenters come from. Never but, appealed, you know, though. When do you see, when you, uh, weirdly, standing behind the camera so many years, the idea of standing in front of it never appealed just because... I imagine. I, I, I used to get my teams, my filming teams, to always point the camera at themselves because it's an incredibly... Um, uh, you feel very naked uh, because mm. you have all these people behind the camera pointing this sort of black lens at you and you have no real control over what's going to come out the other end of it and you really, really have to trust the person behind the camera. That's why I never took, and I still don't take that role very lightly when you're working with a presenter. They have to, you have, they have to know you've got their back because... It is a very stark feeling when you're out there going, oh, God, I hope they make me look good. I hope I don't look stupid. And when you say to them, mm. was that good? If it's not good, be honest and say, no, that wasn't good, but this is how we do it better, rather than going, yeah, yeah, you're brilliant, 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 and then just sticking them on the TV and... and, and Hoping and for the best. And hoping for the best and, and just putting them out there because they are the ones out on the island. And mm. I think the other thing we should probably mention as well 
is the wonderful world of dangle and food stylists. So, oh yeah, in our cookery shows, much like I don't in know yours, what a dangle is. Oh, by the way, dangle. So Do you know what dingle, dingle and dangle? So when no. uh, on all of our sh- shows, whenever we were doing them, uh, at some point after the adventure, we would put together a beautiful dish, right? So there was a point where we'd go off on mad adventures, we'd bugger off to Siberia and milk a reindeer, and Hester would make some ice cream that caught fire or whatever. But then when we come to reveal what we've made, it's normally done in a studio kitchen, not dissimilar to your world, but with not live, and where we'd film, this is how I made what I made. And at the end of that, you have your beautiful shot of the food and you get your cameras on the tracks and you get the nice lenses and everything looks sexy. But um, our, our cameraman always used to use Dingle and Dangle, which is basically hanging things in the foreground of the camera. So they're completely out of focus. So you genuinely never saw them at all. But they added little uh, sparkles of light to the food. And I looked over once and there was this one camera and I was like, what the hell are you doing? And he had a coat hanger and he had spoons, forks, knitting needles, he had about seven things all hanging down just next to the lens so close that the camera would never see them. And all it did was added this sort of, when I say a Nigella sparkle, you'll probably know what I mean, around the food. Mm. That's the dingle and dangle. And then you end up with these... I remember once when we first got first shoot we did we said oh and we're going to get a food stylist I was like oh what a food stylist along I was like what the hell is that and especially when I found out how much he got paid I was like you are having a laugh I'm paying someone to come along and style the food I'll do it and they turned up and we had it was a bowl of apples right it was just a bowl of about eight apples hmm. and i thought we really don't need a food stylist for this and i tried to step i was like just put them in the bowl i was like there you go bowl of apples it looked rubbish on camera and then this food stylist came along and they are normally very lovely people um and just went rearranged them sprayed them a bit of hairspray and suddenly it looked like an ms advert and i was like oh hmm. i see that's what yeah. a food stylist does, and the dark arts. It is incredible, and and as a as a consumer of food and television, I don't think any of us realise how often you see pictures of food on television from your your Tesco's adverts to your McDonald's adverts to every constant ingesting of food via the screen. Behind all of those shots is an amazing box of tricks, which is uh, inedible in general. Most of the terms, I mean, they use glues and uh, lacquers and hair dryers and all sorts of strange things to make these foods look like you imagine they should look because if you ever actually point your camera phone at a big mac for example it doesn't really look like the ones in the advert does it it's no no absolutely and and all i'd say you know my career working around food and, and live television particularly we we would never do that you know, I mean, well, you I, couldn't. I, I'm, I'm, you didn't have a chance, did you? What didn't, you? But also, you learn that you know you're right. There's something, there's a, there's a, there's a non-truth in that, and so we would work very hard to. to I mean, the, the trick of of filming food for me was always to to get it as close to that moment when it comes out of a. You know, but look, there are things you know, we, we we would have the kind of a moment in a recipe in a live program where there's a moment where the chef has to take it out of the pan and that's often the moment of truth where everything's cooking in a pan you have to put it on a plate now some chefs can plate some chefs can't you know we were lucky that James Martin was brilliant at putting the plate of food together on a, on, 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 you know, on a plate so you knew that if he plated it it was going to look delicious but the trick of the camera was to get that camera on it as fast as is humanly possible and so when we would do what we call our pack shots which is the shot of the, the, the finished dish we would you know be ready the curry you know, we'd, we'd ended up doing them in the Saturday morning. We used to record them the day before, but they would never look as good as the camera 
you know, equipment because it's better cameras, but also just that moment that James would plate it up with the chef, potentially, if the chef could do it himself, that'd be great, you know, and get the cameras on it as fast as possible. So it just is in, in looking as appetizing. And we would work so hard at that because that was everything. That the was timing is window. so important, isn't it? You have seconds before these foods go from looking lovely to just suddenly not the speed of movement on it i mean the guys in the fat duck were always brilliant because they've done so much Mm. of the photography work they knew how to do it and they'd get stuff just so but it was a case of you had a sort of four or five hands frantically making stuff and then suddenly everyone just drops back immediately it's like record quick now go and because mm, it, yes. it, it changes so fast, doesn't it? And you've got the environment in a TV studio, which maybe is different from from some of the places you would film. You've got I, I don't know how many lights, but a lot of lights, a lot of people. Yeah. Um. You know, and so in the summer, the studio will be incredibly hot. In the winter, as a result of the fact we we're in an old church with the doors open because <laughs> we're coming in out from a prep kitchen, be minus four. You know, studios so are always got- freezing. That's the reason everyone TV wears puffer jackets because we spend our life freezing our asses not off. in a not, not a food studio you see because you've got two you know you've got five gas burners and and sometimes three ovens burning away plus all the lights and the people so it's tv studios food studios get incredibly hot really? the challenges because you can't turn the air conditioning on because it makes a sound you know and you can't have extraction because it's a tv studio you know so all these things create sound so you can't have them so part of the journey of those recipes in the summertime was this place is like an oven in here and people would wilt you know when you know it would just be unbelievable so you'd be battling with two elements of the spectrum you know the freezing cold because it's if we're talking about atmosphere and chemistry and and what are born you know vivant whatever you know the word is in the cold minus four temperature studio you can't generate heat you know you, you're trying to get warmth on screen and i mean you know emotional warmth but also physical warmth you know so you've got to work extra hard and so the first job of every studio was to turn all the ovens on and just go stand by them <laughs> I, used, I used to hold all my briefing meetings with my team just stood around the ovens you know, I mean, James would come in and just get really cross and push you out of the way because he wanted to put something in the oven. You go, you're not opening that door, mate. <laughs> I'm still I'm not Nobody opened that fridge. <laughs> no, no fridge doors, oven. I'm stood by them, and that's where you know that's where you learn. You know, that's why kitchens are such wonderful places because they're they're warm. But that's an extra challenge for for a tv studio is that battling with the heat generally you know and and it saps the energy so much so that you know we've talked about this with heston heston being heston would work out how many minutes are lost in a studio that doesn't have air conditioning because he can't function you know so you know and it does it just saps the energy so quickly when it's really hot you know and also you don't want to be sweating and dripping sweat into your, your food we don't you know those are those are the battles that you know you, hopefully people don't see on a, on a show like a saturday kitchen or any live cookery shows the kind of the environment that you're in well that that's it isn't it because your your environment always has to look perfect whereas what we, we'd turn up our challenge is always turning up in, in in a different location every day and and going right what the heck where where are we now okay we're in amman now we've got to figure out how to do it like you said incredibly hot heat okay now we're somewhere very cold and also that you add <laughs> people and language barriers are always such a joy when you turn up uh in new i remember going once to italy and we were going there to film this illustrious mushroom auction it sounded incredibly exciting all these locals come from hundreds of miles around to argue and debate and there was going to be stalls everywhere and it was going to be the most incredible we were so excited and our fixer said yeah 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 it was brilliant and we then flew out there and we arrived and we realized when we got there the mushroom auction had finished the day before which nobody had bothered to mention to us and we're suddenly like <laughs> right what are we doing now and that's when i love it because that's the most exciting part of tv is basically when everything's falling apart and you're like great 
now we adapt now we make things work and and as you said you still have to be truthful what you can't be doing is is getting people to um pretend so what we couldn't do is get a load of stalls put up and and Mm. people stand behind them and pretend because that wouldn't be real and also wouldn't be possible in the time we had in the language barrier but what we did do is went okay great let's reboot let's embrace the fact that we're out in this forest let's let's get a load of locals together who love their mushrooms let's get a load of mushrooms and then what we're going to do is we're just going to say to them hey guys these are give them to one of them and say right these are now yours can you sell them and then just let them go and then suddenly before we knew it we had a full-on eight to ten fantastically gnarled looking italians all fighting and shouting at each other to actually buy these mushrooms for real Mm. with their own cash and suddenly like brilliant now we've made a mushroom auction which is really happening it's different to what we expected but it can still work and you still end up with the story it still makes sense um and that's the fun bit of it thinking on your feet adapting Mm. making these things work and still keeping the story moving forward and that that that's the the exciting but that's for production challenge no you're absolutely right and that's in live telly maybe you have more of those moments on a micro scale throughout your show you know but essentially it's the same you know yeah yeah you know, but also we have the freedom and the joy but once that 90 minutes in that show when it is over it's over there's no six weeks of edit you don't have to relive the pain that's that's one thing I loved about live TV when I rarely do it is when you say you get that real fizz of excitement when you're doing it and when it stops it's a high five moment yes we did that whereas in ours I think Spielberg once said no edits ever finished it's just abandoned and it's very true these <laughs> things can be edited till the till because there's a lot of stakeholders in these things they can go and go and go and go and go the best thing is when you're editing against TX because you know you have to finish it because the show's going out that's really useful because it helps people focus that maybe there's it's only, funny isn't it yeah there's yeah. one way of doing this not 65 ways of doing absolutely it. and we just have to decide and then it becomes who really wants to make that decision and what i found if i'm honest during my time when that red light went on when you were in a gallery where all the voices are talking and there's lots of stakeholders as you say and some are very vocal and some are less vocal than some are judgmental and grumpy, whatever there's lots of them what you find is when that red light goes on and when the decisions really have to be made they all stop talking. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> and they all look at you. And go, and they what go, do we do now? <laughs> what, what do we do now? And that's when you have to have that trust with your presenter who's on the other side of that invisible wall, which because you're sat in another room with banks of video monitors and, and people and, and you know, you're sat next to... I, or I always used to make sure, and during my whole career, I sat next to what's called the script supervisor in the end, but used to be what's called the PA because she had the stopwatches and she had the script. She had the timings. I was always very good at running all the timings and have a good sense of time but i would always want to hold the hand of that person and just say where are we in this time they always do it in reverse as well it's always like voodoo because they're counting down how long the package is and counting up how long you've got in the thing and then doing these maths on the run with time oh you wait till you get a musical number in oh that's that it's amazing couldn't it bar (laughs) counting so what happens in those just for people this is not food telly now this is musical telly is that you have a you 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 do a kind of choreography run so the the director depending on who they are which are a different animal you're a director but studio directors and 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 maybe location documentary directors have similar traits but often a studio director will be a caricature of a of a man or woman <laughs> there you are. Um, who like to stand on a chair and do it or, <laughs> or spin around on their head because they're just flamboyant and they're counting cameras but what you do with with music is that you're kind of choreographing those shots so they know the order they've got say six cameras they might have 36 you know but they will know what order they're going to come to them based on where the music is so that it's in time so if you look watch a top of the pops or any or strictly or whatever you know the way that the music and and the cameras are cut it's not arbitrary at the moment it's it's 
directed and it's choreographed so they will know they're going to come to camera two on bar three they want to be on the push out shot from camera five when the chorus comes or or the singer generally does a big hand movement so they need to go wide so it's all choreographed so they plot this out in rehearsal first of all I do a breakdown of the music on paper then they'll rehearse that with the artist maybe with stand-ins to a backing track you might not see your your artist musical artist on set until you're live you know but you will be prepared and then the, the script supervisor will count those things in so they'll be counting you know one two three come to four 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 come to five five oh, wow. five, five and meanwhile the director's just shouting stuff like <laughs> brian john <laughs> just getting really cross but you know but it's you know so they're a, they're a whole production in themselves so if you have if you have a lot of those in your show or you know in in our case on a saturday kitchen where occasionally we would be allowed to do something out of a box of food and have a wonderful artist like jack savaretti or whoever perform on the show or you know whatever for a special moment you you know then you get that in the middle of your show and you're just thinking this is bananas you know you're counting food which is we do we used to we used to um you know really break down those recipes so we knew where we have you know i'm sure it's the same wherever you are but you lay out there's a formula you lay out your ingredients plates and you have everything laid out which are styled by your food stylist so you don't just put spices out you do a spice wheel and different <laughs> and different spice stylists would have their own signature spice wheel so some of them would do them in a swirl some would do squares you know they all like to be you know have their own thing you know but <laughs> you know what order all those spices are going to go in. And also what you're doing is checking that they've all gone in. So if you've got any ingredient left in your ingredients board, you go, what, what's supposed to happen with the garlic, James? <laughs> you know? uh, he hasn't put the peppers in. You know, that kind of, I've that'll be a part of your role. But the, the script supervisor would have all those things on, on Saturday Kitchen. Certainly we'd, be, we'd do this detail, but in order. You know, and also we'd make a note of some interesting things that they talked about in rehearsal, right? So, you know, we'd oh be going, God. he mentioned his grandmother's love of garlic at this point, you know, in case you know, James is thinking of something to say, you know. So we'd have all those things. And we'd also know that it was three and a half minutes in at this point. We're three and a half minutes in, James, and he hasn't even chopped the garlic. We're really behind. Can you just nudge him? Right, you know, so this is the ludicrous who, world we live in, isn't it? I mean, and, and depending on who the guest is, James can even lean in and go, "Get a move on, will you? News will be on in a minute." <laughs> you know, or um, he can politely go, well, um, "What do you? What, what's uh, what do you can do with the garlic?" Yeah, what about the garlic? <laughs> you know, garlic it depends. Yeah, and, and sometimes you would have to do it four times until they go, "Oh, you want me to do the garlic now?" Do you? cut to yeah, the tight so shots? You, you can just go put the garlic in. But often you would want to embrace some of those things because that's for that's for you know. You know, that's for fun of being in that moment with someone who's cooking a recipe is to try and get, you know, I always used to have this principle that there's, when there's a, there's a chef that I'm sure many of our listeners know, if you don't, he's, he's called Marcus Waring and I'm, I'm not going to tell a defamatory story because I think he's brilliant, but he would often be the hardest man to make laugh in the world. <laughs> he's, he's a very serious man and for good reason, but he's also got a brilliant sense of humour and he's incredibly funny and, and part of the journey of, certainly when we started that show, he'd not done a lot of shows like that. He was very much one of the crowd that, you know, that thought this isn't really for me. I don't really see what, you know, what the value of it is. But my, my, my whole mode in those early years of Saturday Kitchen was to get Marcus Waring to smile and then if we could to get him to laugh, right? And that, we would try things. We would try make jokes. I would, you know, James was brilliant. You know, James was naturally very funny, but also had, we had a very good trust. So if I said something in his ear, he would generally repeat it, which was wonderfully, you know, rewarding for me. Um, but uh, it meant that we could try things. So you just keep nudging Marcus all the way along. You know, Marcus, Marcus, Marcus. Until eventually you would have had to crack and go, oh, for God's sake, you are such an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> <And that's long. laughs> 
or he, we would generally find something that would make his face crack. You know, and, and then you think, that's it. That's, 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 that's it. the show. That's the moment. It's you know, like that, those hard-earned We're out of here now. Oh. You know, and, and, and often a show, for me, thinking back on it, would hinge on those moments. You'd have a show that for 40 minutes could be very good, nothing wrong with it, but it just didn't have a moment. I mean, something would happen usually in every show that became that moment, you know, and often in, in that show, just from if, if there's anyone listening who's interested in Saturday Kitchen, it would often be the Omelette Challenge, which is no longer part of the show, um, but that wasn't during my time, but it would often be a catalyst for chaos. So it would often just break apart any formula, well, formulaic sort of the things that were going on that people were being too polite or something would happen. Chaos is good at times. That, yeah, it really helps. And, it would, and so the remaining half hour of the show would just be hilarious because people go, oh, this is nonsense, isn't it? Yeah. You know, they'd done a serious bit and they'd think it very seriously. I mean, actually, come on, this is live tennis. Let's have a laugh now. That is the you feeling know. of that show as well. It, it, you always felt after a point it just became very relaxed and everyone was having a chat. And um, yeah, it was but lovely. It's, it's the atmosphere you talk about. You know, when, when you're filming, you're trying to create that that, that comfortable relaxed feeling you know at a point where you can capture it on camera yeah talking about which it's time for everyone to get back to their mince pies thank you out there for for indulging us for the three listeners if they still did, left, i think they all tuned off two of them point. two of them left it's basically just me and you talking to each other now i know but uh, <laughs> just talking tv i mean god thank you out there for indulging us in our in our christmas present well <laughs> see i feel i don't haven't learned any i've just talked to you jay and i feel very self-indulgent on my own behalf so i'd yeah, we should revisit this one day and, and you do the talking because I'd like to know more about the, the, the making of pretty pictures you see because that's because I'm a producer whereas you're I suppose a director first producer second, pretty right? picture maker okay well if, yeah. if we've if we've managed to bring more, more than three view- listeners to this then we'll revisit it at another point and anyone out there and if we don't we're going to punish the rest of them for turning <laughs> off How am I doing it? by doing it and- again <laughs> If you have any questions out there about the the TV making food process, obviously James and I are incredibly uh, indiscreet, so we'll say anything about anybody. We don't really mind. So do do ping them into us at Journey to Centre of Food uh, on Instagram, Journey to Centre of Food at gmail.com. But for this week, all that's left to say is a very happy New Year to everyone out there. Thank you ever so much happy for being on this year, journey absolutely. with us. It's been a it's been a joy, and we're thoroughly in, enjoying it. And while we know the podcast is is obviously taking a slightly different direction, having our guest hosts has been has been wonderfully educational and really inspiring at times. And we hope you're enjoying the um, the journey with us. So thank you for being and there. And let us know. And let us know generally what you think, what we're doing right, you know, and what we're doing wrong. Sometimes tell us what we're doing right. It is nice to hear that. Yeah. But we learn from what we're doing Don't wrong. Don't really care it's about really no, We want to hear the good things. <laughs> and also, if you're listening to this in, like, mid-March, I mean, obviously, <laughs> whatever, happy nothing. Easter. Happy Easter. <laughs> Evergreen. James, thank you as ever. A very happy new year. I will see you thank in you. the future that is 2022. How exciting. Speak to you soon. Bye.